good to see you here today. I hope you've had a, a great Thanksgiving weekend and good to have you wrapping it up here at Freedom. Uh, let me say a word of welcome to those who will be joining us online. Uh, we're glad that you can be a part of Freedom Online today. I know the challenge of this Sunday every year is the same, and that is we're prone to uh, having Thanksgiving hangovers by uh, Sunday morning. Between all the food that we've had for a solid week and all the time with extended family and all the ball games and all of the Black Friday shopping, you get to Sunday and there's not much left in the tank, is there? Uh, the good news is uh, today's going to be an opportunity to get your tank refilled because uh, the Spirit of God is present to supply what, what we are lacking, and uh, He loves to pour that out on us. We're in a series right now that uh, is entitled Avoiding the Pitfalls, and the, the whole point of this series is about helping us to recognize and hopefully move around the things that tend to really trip us up in our lives spiritually, the things that would keep us from living in a place of abundance, from living in a place of God's favor, and really entering into God's rest. And uh, so t today we're going to be talking about one of those pitfalls that is uh, all about what happens in worship, avoiding the pitfall of settling for hollow, empty worship. And so as we turn our attention in that direction, I'll begin with uh, a story that I heard recently. Uh, Dad was sharing uh, about himself, a true story, uh, about what was supposed to be the best and biggest Christmas gift that he had ever given that ended up being a real dud. He said that uh, he and his wife had been working for years to get to a place that they could be completely debt-free, and they finally, after a long, long time, arrived at that point. House was paid for, cars, everything paid off, and in celebration of that, the two of them decided they were going to do two things to sort of reward themselves and their kids for what they had finally done to get debt-free. They were, first of all, going to go out and buy a big refrigerator. They had a big family, four kids, and they wanted a new big refrigerator, so they were going to do that, but then they wanted to do something that would be more for the kids, and so the second thing they were going to do was take the kids to Disney. They didn't live anywhere close to Disney, so it was a big, big deal to take all four kids and go to Disney together. Well, the dad, who's always thinking a step ahead, said, I have a great idea. I'm going to take the box from the refrigerator and I'm going to wrap the whole thing with Christmas paper, and I'm going to put inside that box a note that tells the kids that we're going to take them to Disney soon, and that'll be one of their Christmas gifts. And so he's a, he's a bigger and better guy anyway. So he wraps a refrigerator box and puts it in the room beside the Christmas tree. And already, I know you're with me thinking, this is a bad idea in so many ways. And he, he admitted, he said, it didn't take long to realize that the idea of having a refrigerator box in the room with your Christmas tree for the month of December isn't a great thing. You can bet he didn't ask his wife about that before he did it. But he said it had the desired effect on the kids that they are losing their minds day after day. This is incredible, a gift for all four kids. It's the biggest gift ever. It's got to be the greatest gift ever. And he said, you know, he's just loving it. Like, oh, yeah, I have done it this year. And so they get to Christmas morning, and he said the kids are just tearing through all their other gifts, and it's like they don't even really care about all this other stuff. To them, it's just junk because there is the mega gift. And he said they, they just tear through everything else. They get it done. And they're thinking about nothing but the big box. And they're like, Dad, can we open the big gift? Yeah, y'all can open the big gift. It's the only one left. So they tear into it. They get the paper off and they rip it open. And there is nothing inside the big box. And they look at the dad like, what is the deal? And he looks in and he's like, oh, yeah, I forgot something. And he runs in the bedroom. He forgot to put the note in that explains 
about the trip to Disney. And so he, he gets this hastily written note and he brings back and he's like, this was supposed to be in the box. And the kids look at the note and it's like, we're going to go to Disney soon. Are we going to Disney today? Well, no, we're going to Disney this week. Well, well no, but we're going to go to Disney soon. Is that the whole gift? It's like, that, that's the whole gift. He said, all these years later, two of my four kids still need therapy, trying to recover from that Christmas. The worst gift ever, because it looked like such a big, beautiful, inviting package. But inside, it was just empty. Now, I'll start with that story because it's a pretty good picture of what can happen on Sunday mornings. We who grew up in the Bible Belt, we all know the importance of what happens on Sunday morning. If you're a follower of Jesus, the one way you better be expressing that is you go to church, you attend worship on Sunday morning, right? We all know this. I mean, we, we would look at each other and think, what kind of Christian are you if you don't even go to worship on Sunday morning? But the truth of the matter is... That there are lots of folks who come to worship on Sunday morning and we, we wrap the package just right. We put on the right kind of clothes to fit in and look nice. We fix ourselves up and, and we come and we go through all of the motions. We show up at the right time. We point our faces in the right direction. We follow the words on the screen. We move our lips. We stand at the right time, sit at the right time. We do the right stuff. And it looks like on the outside we've brought this wonderful gift of worship and praise to God. But if you could just see beyond the exterior of the package, wouldn't we be embarrassed a lot of times? If people could read our minds and know what's in our hearts on a lot of Sunday mornings, oh, wouldn't we blush? Wouldn't we want to run back to our cars and just hide out? If people could just see how many times we've been in here... Going through the motions, but meanwhile thinking about what all we've got to buy for the people for Christmas that we haven't shopped for yet. And what are we going to do for lunch? And thinking about all the things that went on this weekend and still trying to recover from the ball games yesterday. All these places that our minds are going. If they could see our hearts. Oh, when we look like we're here just to love Jesus. But the truth of the matter is we are hating the person we're sitting next to because we had a fight on the way to church today. And right now we're feeling anything but love in our hearts. I know none of you have ever done that. But I read about it in a book somewhere. You know what I'm talking about. All the times we've come to church, looking the part on the outside and on the inside, it's just an empty box. Empty worship is a trap. Because it can become a lifestyle. It can just become the norm that we show up, we sing the songs, we go through the motions, we listen to his little talk on Sunday mornings, and we go, thank you very much. And we go back to our, our regular life as scheduled, and we never come close to engaging with the Spirit of God in this place. That's a trap. It's a trap that Jesus wanted desperately for us to avoid. Now, where we want to turn in the scriptures today is found in Matthew chapter 15. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. Or you can just pull out your outline. The relevant portions are there at the top of your outline. And before we read that, I want to just uh, kind of set the stage for what we're going to be reading. It's another encounter between Jesus and the Pharisees. 
The Pharisees were, of course, the, the religious professionals of Jesus' day. They were the rule makers and the rule keepers. They were the ones who measured everybody to see if they measured up, and nobody ever measured up to them because they were the ultimate rule keepers. And they drove Jesus crazy. They were always butting heads with Jesus. Clearly, they couldn't stand him, and Jesus didn't, didn't feel much for them either. He, they just drove him nuts. And on this particular day, they've come to Jesus. They're all hot and bothered because they notice that Jesus and his disciples don't follow their hand-washing rituals. And boy, did they have some hand-washing rituals. You see, the Pharisees were obsessed with clean and unclean. How many clean freaks do we have in the room? It's okay for you to point to the person next to you if they're not raising their hand and you know that they are. In terms of hygiene, I'm a little bit of a clean freak. Like, I'm never going to go through a day that I don't shower at least twice. I mean, I'm all into being clean. And I thought I was a clean person until I married Jackie. And now I feel very unclean because she takes clean to a whole other level. Well, I want to tell you, the Pharisees took it to a whole other level. But it wasn't a hygiene thing. It was ritual cleansing and it was all about how everything on earth is either clean or unclean. There is no in-between. And so, you know, it's the whole deal of, like, there are clean animals and there are unclean animals. There are animals you can eat, animals you can't eat, animals you can touch or that you shouldn't touch. And everything in life is clean or unclean. And their way of thinking about it is like, you remember in fifth grade, the whole idea of cooties? You know? <laughs> Cooties catch. So, you know, you point out somebody you don't like, say, ooh, they got cooties. Don't be around them because you'll get cooties from them. Well, clean and unclean works that way. It's like cooties. If something is unclean, like if a mouse is unclean and it touches a cup, the cup is now unclean. And if you pick up the cup, now you are unclean. And if you touch your spouse, they are unclean. See, it's just like a cootie. It, It just passes. And so they were just obsessed with the whole thing of clean and unclean. And so part of how they dealt with that is you did this ritual cleansing. And it's just so absurd the level of rules that they had about this. For every meal, you had to ritually cleanse yourself. And so they measured this thing. They they used what they called a half log of water, which was a technical deal. Half a log of water was what one and a half eggshells could hold of water. Who in the world decided this was the rule? But that was their rule. So it's just a teeny little bit of water. And you have to wash a particular way. And you've got you to do it the right way so that the water runs off your fingertips. Because if you do this, unclean, your hands were unclean. Now the water's unclean. If it runs up your arm, your arm's unclean. If it drips on your body, your body's unclean. It's just like cooties. So you've got to do it just right. And not only do you have to do this before the meal, you have to do it between every course of the meal. So you've got to wash it before your burger. You've got to then wash again before your tater tots. You've got to wash again before your milkshake. You, you have got to wash before everything. And Jesus and his disciples, they didn't fool with his silliness. And the Pharisees hated that. Because everything has got to be clean. Well, that's what's going on in Matthew 15 when we read that some Pharisees and teachers of religious law now arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus. And they asked him, why do your disciples disobey our age-old tradition? For they ignore our tradition of ceremonial hand-washing before they eat. Jesus replied, And why do you, by your traditions, violate the direct commandments of God? You cancel the word of God for the sake of your own tradition, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, These people honor me with their lips... 
but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce. That's strong. He says, you put on this big show. You wrap the package so nicely. But the truth of the matter is, all of your worship and all of your religious activity, it's a farce. It's a joke to me. It is sickening. God isn't pleased with what's coming out of your mouth because it doesn't reflect what's really in your heart. You've made up all of these rules and these traditions, and this is not the kind of worship that God desires. I wonder what God thinks a lot of times when he looks at our worship. I'm convinced of this, and there's no condemnation of what I'm about to say. In fact, there's really excitement and anticipation. I am convinced that we have a lot of growing room in the area of worship. And I'm excited because I know the Lord's speaking about this, and I believe that the Holy Spirit is wanting to move us from where we have been to new places in terms of worship. Now, the trap is that we would be so familiar with worship that our expectations would get dumbed down. That we would get to a place that we think we know in advance what worship's going to be like. And worship's just going to sort of be the sum total of our voices and the, you know, Tony and the worship team's talents and the songs that they pick and whether, you know, Mark can say anything insightful or funny or whatever. And, and that worship would just be the sum total of those things. What a sad, sad excuse that would be to replace real worship with that. There's room for us to grow. And today is supposed to be one of those days that we move in that direction. Would you just be willing to embrace that now? I mean, would you be open to the Lord today by His Spirit taking us and taking you personally to some new levels in terms of worship and your expressiveness in worship? All right. Me too. I think we've got growing room. And I'm encouraged because I believe that we together are saying yes to what He wants to do. Well, I will tell you, um, I grew up Baptist. That's not all a good thing or all a bad thing it's just it's a fact some of you grew up like i did i grew up in the baptist church and so i've been in worship all of my life and we knew how to do worship in the baptist church we thought we did it better than everybody else so let me tell you what worship is supposed to look like first of all it's supposed to happen at 11 o'clock and it ends at 12 o'clock and if you're lucky you might get out at 11:58, but it does not go to 1205 you put on your best, which eventually led me as a teenager to wonder why we as guys didn't all own tuxedos. Because God likes dressed up people. And once you realize that God likes dressed up people, I always wondered why we didn't just buy the best there is to dress up. Anyway, that's another thought for another day. But you put on your best. If you really love Jesus, you come to Sunday school at 945. But you're in worship by 11. And worship is pretty much a hymn sandwich, which means you, you're going to, first of all, you're going to sing out of a hymnal. And some of you younger people, you're going to need to Google what that is. But it's a book with a lot of old tunes in it, great old tunes. They're all numbered. And you sing verses 1, 2, and 4. 
There's something tricky about verse 3. Tony, can you explain that to us sometime, what it is about verse 3 that you've got to dodge that thing? It's all about getting out by 12. That's it. I think that was exactly it. The worship leader was in on it. You do that hymn sandwich, there's always a choir. They've got on robes and the stoles. And there's always going to be a solo right before the sermon, right after they receive the offering and those silver plates. And at the end, we're going to sing all the verses except the fifth verse, because there's six verses to Just As I Am. We're going to sing verses 1, 2, 3, 4, and 6 of Just As I Am. And then we're going to pray and go home at 12 o'clock. And it has been a good day if we're out by 12. That's what worship looks like. That's what it did in my church. Now, you may have grown up in a different tradition. The truth of the matter is, we have expectations based on whatever we grew up in. Some of you grew up in traditions where you may have seen people swinging from the chandeliers and taking laps around the room and leaping over chairs and pews. Some of you in between. Some of you grew up in a high church where it's all about the liturgy. It all begs the question, what kind of worship does God really love? What's he into? Because we tend to think that what God really loves is what we really love. God made us in his image and we've returned the favor. We've remade him in our image and our minds. And so we think that God likes what we like. So if you grew up on the hymns, you think God really, he accepts it all, but he really loves the hymns. If you're into praise and worship, you think he's much more dialed into that. But do you ever just pause to consider what an absurd discussion that is to figure out what God really likes in terms of worship. I mean, can you imagine for those of us who are parents, when your kids were little, I mean, I just think if my girls, when they were little, if had ever come in to me on a Father's Day and said, Dad, we've got a song we want to sing to you to tell you how much we love you and what a great dad we think you are. And if they had started singing to me on Father's Day of their love for me and, and me being their dad, can you imagine me stopping them to go, whoa, 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 time out, time out. If you're going to sing a song to me about how you love me and about what a great dad I am, at the very least, I'd like to have a band backing you up. <laughs> and I'd like for you to be in skinny jeans and somebody have some spiked up hair. And I would appreciate it if we could recognize which of you is the worship leader here. And let's try and get this thing right, because that's the kind of dad-loving that I appreciate. No! There's not one chance in a million that I would, would return their love with that kind of response. I don't care if they come in beating a five-gallon bucket, singing my praises. I'd be going, that is beautiful. I love that, because it's from your heart. And so I don't care if you're just beating two sticks together or if you've got, on a, got a whole dance routine and you're going to twirl around the room and dance while you sing. It's all good because it's us enjoying one another. So can we just strip away all of our preconceived ideas of the kind of worship that God really likes and forget this foolishness of sort of boycotting it because... Tony, this week you went a little low key, and I'm really not into that. That was sort of a downer. So I'm just going to, you know, sit this one out. Or, you know, next week we've got the full band here. I think I'm going to just stay out in the foyer because that's a little too loud, Tony. That's a little, little much for me. Can we just get over ourselves? It wasn't for you. It's not for me. It's for him. It, it, it is.
I've worshipped in a lot of places and a lot of countries, and the thing that I have found consistently to be the case, regardless of the style of music, and here's the really amazing thing, regardless of the language, I can't tell you how many times I've been in worship services, I couldn't tell you three words that they sang because they're singing it in Swahili or in Maasai or, or in Spanish, and I don't speak any of the above, I'm still working on English, and yet it was just rich, it was good, and God was there. And it didn't matter what the style was. We've got to get over ourselves. I confess I stayed up late last night, later than I normally do on a Saturday night. I was watching that crazy LSU-Texas A&M game. Seven overtimes. Highest scoring game in football. Crazy stuff. And it was, it was just um, a reminder in watching that. Of what I'm afraid we have happened in worship a lot of times. Kyle Field. Packed with people. The 12th man. You know, Texas A&M. Packed with all these folks. But it's only a handful of people, 22 at a time, that are really in the game. And you got the coaches in their boxes on the sidelines. But a hundred and something thousand spectators. And we're so accustomed to watching these kinds of events that I am convinced we bring it over into worship. And we, we behave and think as though we are now the stadium of people who are the spectators. And here's the playing field. So you hope that Tony and Vicky and Carl, the band, Mark, you hope everybody that's in the game does a good job. And if you do well, we might sing along and even clap if you make a good play. And that is so off base because what happens in here, what I just described, isn't at all supposed to correlate with what happens on the football field or, or in an auditorium for a play. In fact, it's all reversed. This is the playing field. This is the coaching box. And there's the audience. Everybody here is in the game. Nobody can afford to act like you're sitting on the bench or on the sidelines. The worship that God longs for is heartfelt worship where we all engage. So how do we get beyond the empty farce that Jesus is talking about? Well, we better bring heart and passion to it. We better grasp that it's never a spectator sport. You with me on that? Worship can never be a spectator sport. And if it's going to be biblical worship, it's going to bring several different elements. If you've got your outlines, I want you to follow along with me. I'm going to move through these kind of quickly because we're going to have some time to just continue in worship today after we just move through these in the next few minutes. Eight things that I want you to notice about how we should express ourselves in worship. And this is not a checklist. This is not eight things you better be sure and do every time that you come to worship. But these are all eight things that should be true of our lives in worship and in any worship service, there should be a multitude of these things that we bring in worship. The first one is this. Sometimes when we worship, we kneel or we bow in reverence. David said in Psalm 95, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Have you ever just been in worship in times when the Lord's presence is just so real? It's so overwhelming. You, you just know you're in the presence of greatness, and every fiber of your being says it is not okay to just sit here like nothing is happening. 
everything in you is screaming, get on your knees, get on your face in the presence of the great king. Just bow before him. It doesn't mean that you have to, every time you come into worship, you do this, you manufacture this moment. But there are just times that your heart longs to just, in humility, just bow before the Lord. Now, I know this. We have this struggle going on inside of us between what we want to do in response to God and what we're worried about in terms of what the people around us are going to think. If I get on my knees right now, my my friends around me here are going to think I'm trying to be hyper-spiritual. I'm sure they're going to be asking, well, what's going on with him? What's she trying to say? Is she more spiritual than us? You know that goes through our heads. So can we just right now agree together we're throwing that out? We draw a line today going forward and we refuse. First of all, we refuse to worry about that anymore, but we refuse to judge each other anymore. We choose together to say, you know what, if the person next to me is on their knees, I'm just going to say, praise God, Jesus is drawing near. Praise God, they are humbling themselves in the presence of the Lord Jesus. What a good thing is going on. Now, I realize there is a physical restriction with where you are right now. Those rows are so close together. And so, let me just clear something up. That's worship space, that is worship space, and that is worship space. In worship, we just need to get free to get out of the rows. Okay? And and as you're just engaging in worship whenever you want to, anytime you want to, I don't care if it's when I'm preaching or when we're singing or when we're praying, there are going to be times it's just appropriate and you're just going to want to get on your knees and that is fine. You can just kiss the carpet as long as you need to, to honor the Lord Jesus. It's an appropriate response. And, And there are going to be times... This may sound odd to you. There are going to be times when you need to do that, even though your heart hasn't fully engaged yet. Because sometimes your heart will lead your body, and sometimes your body's got to lead your heart. Sometimes you come in, and your heart's in a funk, and your head's in the wrong place, and you've got to engage your body and your mouth and let your mind and your heart follow suit. Sometimes you get in a position of worship, and your brain and your heart will catch up. And so sometimes we're just going to need to get in here. And sometimes you're going to just feel like, I just feel like I'm going through the motions. I'm just, I'm not into it. And sometimes you just may need to just stop what you're doing and just go get on your face and just stay on your face until your heart catches up. You with me? Sometimes we bow in worship. Number two, sometimes we raise our hands in adoration and surrender. It's funny. How much this feels like a dividing line for people. There's the hand raisers and there's the folks who are like, I feel like I'm naked in worship if I raise my hands. That didn't feel like me. Can we just agree, this is not some weirdo thing. This is a biblical thing. That we raise our hands in worship. David said in Psalm 63, I will praise you as long as I live and in your name I will lift up my hands. Paul said... First Timothy 2, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands. I know some of us want to be cerebral about this and go, well, what's that even supposed to mean? Well, in our culture, I'm convinced that raising your hands means one of three things. We raise our hands in surrender, 
signifying you got the gun and I don't, so I surrender. You can have my wallet, you can have whatever you want, I surrender. You've got the power and I don't. I give up. That's a good thing to do in worship, to just say, Jesus, I surrender. I acknowledge you are God and I am not. And I surrender to you. second thing it does is it just declares victory. In every one of those ball games yesterday, I never saw a single time that they had to go, all right, everybody stop now. We just want to remind you on this next play, it's going to be a big play. We're going to score and we need you to stand up and lift your hands. They never did that one time. Spontaneously, every time a big play happened, everybody acted the fool and went, whoa, and raised their hands and shouted. You couldn't keep them in their seats. Four and a half hours in that game last night, seven overtimes, and they're still all, I mean, they're panning across there. I'm noticing in the seventh overtime, hands in the air around the room. Don't you tell me on Sunday morning this is the best that we can bring. We're the same bunch of wild banshees on Saturday acting the fool. We better get free for Jesus in here and get it up in victory. I don't care if your team won or lost yesterday. And how dare we come in on the day after the Iron Bowl and look like a bunch of sad sacks on any given year because our team lost. Jesus is on the throne and heaven is still open and the kingdom of God is advancing. Who gives a rip what happened on Saturday? We need to bring it on Sunday. We raise our hands. Yes, and it's okay to give feedback. I will work with that. We raise our hands in surrender. We raise our hands in victory. And we raise our hands in love and adoration. If you've got a three-year-old and you walk in the room and they hadn't seen you for a while, it is so instinctive that they come up doing this. Reagan, my four-year-old granddaughter, I got to spend time with her twice this week. And every time she sees me, she comes on the run doing this. And my heart just blows up. I don't care how dirty she is. I don't care if she's got something running out of her nose. I'm just going to grab her up and love her because she's charging with her hands wide up, open to me, just saying, I want you, Gramps. When we bring that to God, it blesses his heart, and he pours himself out on us. So we raise our hands in worship. Number three, sometimes we sing or we shout to declare our love and God's greatness. Last week we were in the 95th Psalm where it says, Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Psalm 47, shout to God with cries of joy. We focused on that last week. We had a little shout and practice last Sunday. We just, we need to get free with that. It's okay. And I get it. We've been socialized to be kind of dumbed down. Use your inside voice. We've all been taught that. But it's okay. We, we shouted a lot yesterday, those of us that are football fans. We can bring some of that in here. And if you need to just work at learning to shout, you can just start with, come on. That's right. Amen. Yes. And you'll find yourself before you know it, you'll be able to shout hallelujah. Come you. You can at least give give one good hallelujah this morning, can't you? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That just means praise to God. Glory to God. When it's good, when it's right, you don't have to have me or Tony turn you loose. You are loosed. You You just can turn loose with a hallelujah, with a praise Jesus. Number four, 
Sometimes we dance or clap our hands in celebration and all the white people just got uptight. I know, I know. We can't even clap on two and four. Much less, I mean, the thought of two, two and four is what we're after, isn't it, Tony? Settle for one and three, but we wish for two and four. It's okay. Just, just bang them together. Follow Tony when you can. But I know the whole idea of dance makes so many people up. I, I, I trust me. I get it. Like most of the people that I go to church with, I look like I've had a severe brain damage accident when I try to dance. It's, it, I get it. Dancing sounds disturbing. What's the whole point of, of dancing and worship? The point is that you just engage your whole body. I grew up Baptist, so I'll probably never be able to dance without keeping one foot firmly planted at all times. It's just a security blanket for me. But here's the thing. You can still engage your whole body. If you can't dance with the stars, at least sway. Just move something. It, and, and I've heard people say, I just can't believe when people get in there waving their hands like they're just trying to get attention. The only attention we want when we're moving is Jesus' attention. We're just, it, it's a biblical thing. The, the Lord says, bring me a wave offering. I watched a ball game this week where they, they were the Central uh, Florida game. And they were, they were so excited to be on national TV. They kept doing the wave just around the rim. Whoa, whoa, just doing the wave. Stand up. And just, just waving their whole body. Engage your whole body in worship. If you just want to jump up, jump up. If you want to sway, if you want to wave your hands, just get engaged. Let every part of you, because as you engage your body, your head and your heart are going to follow. So clap your hands and dance. Number five, sometimes we simply listen or wait in silence, simply enjoying God's presence. And I know the most introverted people in the room go, that's me. I'm a number five worshiper. That's good, but you don't get to pick one and be that for the rest of your life. All eight apply to all of us. But there is a time where the Lord says, be still and know that I'm God. Just be still and be quiet. Just stop talking. Just let me be near you. I love Psalm 130, verse 6. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. I just love that, that picture of there are times I just get still and quiet in His presence and wait, waiting for His Word. I put my hope in His Word. I know He's going to speak if I'll just get quiet and just worship Him. Number six, sometimes we testify and rehearse what God has done. God's pleased with that and the, the body's strengthened by that. How many of you were here for the meal last Sunday night, the Thanksgiving feast? Yeah, I was too. I think I've gained five pounds this week. It started with that feast. But what happened in the grace room was such a joy, wasn't it? I'm not talking about the meal now. I'm talking about what happened after the meal. Just listening to so many of you stand and testify to just declare, here's what God has done. Now, it takes a little intentionality and sometimes a little bit of practice to get good at this because... When we stand up in front of people, it's like something triggers inside of us that we want to enjoy the spotlight or we want to be funny or we want to sound, you know, really smart or something. And the truth of the matter is it's never supposed to be about us. 
we just tell our story to give glory to God for what he's done. So here's the test. When you have a chance to stand and testify, you just ask yourself before you talk and when you're done, is this all about how God has worked in my life or my family or my situation? Is this story going to advance his name and his reputation because of what he's done in my life? And if it is, it passes the test and you go ahead and testify. And that's a rich part of worship is to, you don't just need to know my story. We need to hear each other's stories. And that's why that was so rich Sunday night. We need more of those times. Number seven, we bring tithes and offerings as expressions of our gratitude and praise for his provision. Right in the middle of First Chronicles 16 where David is leading the people of God in this rich time of worship. A part of what he says there in just making all these declarations about how you worship, he says, and bring your offerings and come into his presence. And I just really got convicted as I was reading that this week and just felt like the Holy Spirit said, you you are marginalizing what is supposed to be a rich part of worship. He, He called back to mind for me images in Africa when we've been there on mission trips and what a just a moving, I mean, to me, just some of the most moving stuff I've seen in worship over there would happen during the offering time as people would process to the front and they would bring their little handful of eggs or, or a couple of ears of corn or whatever. And they, they would just with such humble, grateful hearts present to God back some of what he had supplied for them. And I, man, I, you just sensed the Lord's presence and just felt drawn into that in their offering time. Today we're going to do it differently. We're, where's our Dave? You guys that received the offering, don't pass the baskets down the rows today. Today we're going to process to the front, not because we want to see who's giving and who's not today. Like I get it, you get paid once a month or twice a month. You give once a month, twice a month. We get that. But when it's our turn to give, let's just have fun with it. I want you guys to just position yourselves here at the front, and while we're singing the last song. You can just dance to the front if you want to. You can march to the front. You can crawl to the front. I don't care. But you come, and in coming, you just let your little walk down the aisle be your little silent prayer saying, Jesus, I'm bringing part of what you've given me back to you, but I'm bringing me to you. I'd jump in the basket if I could fit in that basket. Because this is my act of worship, to give back to you. You good with that? It ought to be a part of our worship. Kind of. I'm not going to go there. Never mind. I'm, I was going to say something negative. It wasn't going to be beneficial. Number eight. Daily, we offer our lives as an act of worship. Paul said in Romans 12, So then, my friends, because of God's great mercy to us, I appeal to you, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice to God, dedicated to His service and pleasing Him. This is the true act of worship. That you should offer. You don't have to wait for Sunday to do that. That's an everyday thing to just, with your life, to say, Jesus, you're worthy of my worship. You're worthy of my life. You're worthy of everything that I have. And so with every decision, with every part of what I do every day, I just give myself again to you. And it's an understanding between you and me that this is a declaration of your worth and of my worship. Now, it's one thing to just rehearse these things. It's one thing to just go, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm down with that. And it's another to determine, from this point forward, I'm going to get outside my comfort zone. Because God is worthy of us bringing our best.
And so I want us today to just take some time to engage in, in worship and just try and bring it to some other level. So I'm going to invite you, first of all, would you just stand together with me? And I get it. We're oriented in such a way that I'm on a stage which suggests that you need to focus on me, and I don't really want you focused on me right now. I want us to get our hearts focused on Him. So how about just for, for the moment, would you just close your eyes? Would you bow your heads? How do you get to the place of kneeling and shouting and singing and raising hands and all of these things truly being worshipful? How do you get from distracted into that place? Well, first of all, we just got to get our hearts and our minds centered on on the Lord Jesus, on God the Father. Would you with me right now, just in worship before Him, would you just lift up holy hands to Him across the room? Nobody's, nobody's looking around. And would you just begin to let your heart wrap around who He is? He is Jesus. He is King. He is King of Kings. He is Lord of Lords. He is the only begotten Son of the Father. He is Alpha and Omega. He is the very language and revelation of God. He is the beginning and the end. He is the Lion of Judah. He is a warrior, reigning king. He is the one who will return. He is the first and last. He is the firstborn from among the dead. He is the second Adam. He is the beginner of a new race. He is Jesus, and he is in this place. He is the maker and sustainer of everything. He is God, our healer. He is God, our provider. He is the Lord, our banner, who goes before us in battle. He is the very wisdom of God. He is the Lord, our righteousness. He is Lord. He is Lord. He is Lord. Would you just call on his name in this place? Would you speak the name of Jesus? Jesus. 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 Would you tell him that you love him? Bless the name of Jesus in this place. You are good. You are wise. We bless your name, Lord Jesus. We bless you in this place. We welcome your spirit. Jesus. We welcome you in this place. He is the Son of God and He is holy. Holy, holy, holy. Would you sing together of His holiness? Hi. Thanks so much for taking time to tune in and listen to the message today through Freedom Online. Uh, we would love to, the opportunity to meet you personally any time that you're in our area. But if today you heard something that really connected or that maybe you've got questions about, you'd like to talk with somebody or have someone pray with you, we'd love to hear back from you. You can reach us in a couple of different ways. You'll find on the website a contacts link. You can contact me or any member of our leadership directly. Or you can call us at the number that you see on the website or at the bottom of the screen now. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope that you have a great week.